0: Hey, this is Isaac. If you're new with us, hello. It is a ministry uh, that seeks to bring the gospel to the many relevant issues of life and faith that we face every day, cultivating conversation. And one of the primary ways in which we do that is by holding weekly conversations on different topics like the one you're listening to right now. We're actually on our second week of our kind of mini two-week series with Andreas Kostenberger talking about truth in a culture of doubt. You know, the way I can break it down simply is this. That there are many assertions and claims made by skeptics and atheists and others about Christianity kind of in a negative sense. But once you look at the evidence, you find that it's perfectly reasonable and intelligent to believe in the Orthodox Christian truth. Last week and this week, Andreas is helping us unpack a few of these claims, these assertions, things made about the Bible, about God and his sort of characteristics and about Jesus Christ. So as many of us enter once again into our courses at college and university, hopefully this conversation helps prepare us to have a defense for the faith in which we hold. So here's our second conversation with Andreas. With me today again is Andreas Kostenberger. Andreas is a senior research professor of New Testament and biblical theology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also written many books, like we said last week, uh, Greek helps, commentaries, uh, different things like that. A very smart guy. Uh, And it's great to have you again with us today, Andreas.
1: Thank you very much, Isaac. Wonderful to be with you.
0: If you didn't catch last week's show to the listeners, I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, We sort of introduced the structure of our two conversations, but I'll I'll briefly say that again. But before we jump back in, Andreas, could you just give us a quick uh, sort of short summary of who you are? I know listeners who listened last week have got a kind of a fuller picture, but for those just listening, maybe on the radio right now, uh, who who is Andreas Kostenberger?
1: Absolutely. Well, I've always been inquisitive. Uh, i you know, as a college student, I love to ask hard questions. And and so, uh, first of all, as a Christian, I'm, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And, and I'm just deeply grateful for what Christ has done for me in the cross. Um, I also am a, a scholar. Uh, as you mentioned, I love to write. I love to research. And uh, God has just given me um, a, a real passion for the Word being uh, preached uh, with authority and with accuracy and so I teach at a seminary where I have the privilege of of equipping others to serve Christ uh, in a variety of ways whether in a teaching profession or or you know in the preaching ministry I also am a husband and a father I, my wife is Canadian she uh, is also a, a professor and an author uh, has written a book uh, Jesus and the feminist we've co written the book, God's Design for Man and Woman, and we have four children, um, ages uh, mid-20s to uh, the teens who are various stages of their college or high school career.
0: That's awesome. Thank you so much. And again, if you're listening and you want to hear maybe about his his salvation, his testimony, you can go back last week and listen to that as well. So anyways, Andreas has written a book with a couple co-authors called Truth Matters, Confident Faith in a Confusing World. Uh, it's sort of a shorter overview summary, more simpler kind of summary of another book that they've written together called uh, Truth in a Culture of Doubt. Um, and it's this this book, Truth Matters, is sort of divided into these six sections that kind of help uh, debunk or explain some commonly held notions of sort of a, an inability to trust in the Bible or the historical Jesus and things like that, that uh, a scholar named Bart Ehrman has sort of made popular and, and many just people believe these sort of general Skeptical assertions that have made. So what we've been doing is going through these. Last week we sort of looked at very briefly the the problem of let's say evil and you know God's existence. We also looked at uh, you know the the assortment of New Testament books and how they came together as well. And uh, this week we're going to look at four more. Just again very brief kind of uh, a scrape of of some of the uh, evidence, uh, some of the beliefs, so that hopefully it will uh, make us think about it more and dive more into it. But anyways, let's let's continue on to this. Let's let's focus a little bit on to uh, contradictions in the Bible. Uh, so I'm gonna get a quote from Bart Ehrman that starts the chapter four of his book. It says this, and this is what Bart says. At about the time I started to doubt that God had inspired the words of the Bible, I began to be influenced by Bible courses taught from a historical critical perspective. I started seeing discrepancies in the text. I saw that some of the books of the Bible were at odds with one another. I became convinced by the arguments that some of the books were not written by the authors from whom they were named. And I began to see that many of the traditional Christian doctrines that I long held to be beyond question had moved away from the original teachings of Jesus and his apostles. You know, reading something like that or hearing that is very kind of convincing to someone that maybe hasn't dug into it. So help us through this a little bit, Andreas.
1: Absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I once heard someone say, So, what if the Bible has errors in it? I can still believe in Jesus. And my response to the statement is, first of all, that Jesus didn't believe the Bible has errors in it. Uh, In the Gospel of John, for example, he says, Scripture cannot be broken. And so, when you look at Jesus in the Gospels, he's You know, our listeners can check this out. You look at the Gospels, Jesus refers to Adam and Eve as historical characters. He refers to Jonah, the people of Nineveh. He refers to Elisha and lots of other Old Testament characters. So he obviously read the Bible as as historically accurate. And I just want to point out, those people who say the Bible is full of contradictions disagree with Jesus' own assessment of the veracity of the Bible. Uh, Secondly, I'd say that, ironically, uh, skeptics like Bert Ehrman are usually too rigid. I I, I say it's ironically because uh, people who say the Bible is full of contradictions often claim to be more critical and scholarly, like we talked about last week, than those who believe the Bible is true. Uh, But often, when you take a closer look, those so-called contradictions involve what I'd rather call diversity, that is Different but equally legitimate ways of looking at things. So, you know, people say you may look at a glass half full or half empty. Both would be equally truthful. Or uh, think about the story of, you know, how I met my wife or how you met your wife. Uh, I could tell you how, but if you ask her, she'd probably tell the story, you know, rather differently. Uh, Does that mean that one of us is lying? No. So that's what I call legitimate diversity as opposed to actual contradictions. And I think the, the difficulty comes in when people like or skeptics like Bart Ehrman uh, blur the, the lines and, and collapse the two. And so then every time you have a diverse way of presenting things uh, from one's own vantage point, as the four gospel writers regularly do, uh, People jump to the conclusion that you actually don't just have diversity, you have actual contradictions. And so I would say the Bible has plenty of legitimate diversity, but it doesn't actually contradict itself.
0: Yeah, and that's really good to to make a, a difference there with those words, because I know that just the word contradiction has such this negative tone. So when different you know scholars or professors in maybe a college or or university will say the Bible's full of contradictions, uh, to someone that's kind of shaky on their faith, that can be a very a very heavy weight and. And also, you just used the word vantage point, and I know there was a movie that came out, I don't know, probably about five to ten years ago now, I'm not sure when, but it was called Vantage Point, I think it was called, and it was fascinating because it was some attack, I think it was on the White House or something, and it was the movie was sort of done in these four different uh, views, and it was really fascinating to see which views picked up different pieces uh, of the puzzle. Um, and also, this is really interesting, it's a quote from your book, and it's talking about the Bible, and it says this, it's God's work in real life, in the real world, with real people living in a real time, not a carefully managed sheet of talking points designed to keep any of its writers from going off message. And then you kind of go into this idea of it being this harmony of different things coming together. So I think it's really beautiful how you've you've talked about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you see that, you know, uh, you read the quote at the beginning of this segment from Bart Ehrman, where he talks about historical critical scholarship. And, you know, they would label, uh, you know, the relationship between the four gospels in our Bibles, or at least the first three, the synoptic problem. And so you already see that it's slanted toward skepticism. You know, I've sometimes just playfully in my classes, talk about it as a synoptic opportunity (laughs) to give it a bit more of a positive uh, ring, because I feel like in many ways, you know, scholarship is already biasing to to say that diversity is necessarily, you know, something bad. And yet, as you know, when you are in court, you know, and you have multiple witnesses to a car accident, uh, if anything, if, if the accounts are too similar, you wonder if there was any illusion taking place. And, you know, sometimes with skeptics like Bert Ehrman, you can't win because, you know, if the Gospels are too different, he says, look, they're contradictory. If they're too similar, he would say, look, I mean, you can't take it seriously. They're obviously, you know, comparing notes and they're they're, they're colluding and in, in giving you some sort of a sanitized account, just making sure that they're lining up. Uh, so again, you know, in, in, a, in a court setting, you would say that uh, it, it's actually a strength uh, if witnesses... Uh, present uh, a given account, like of a car accident, in each in their own uh, way, because then you know that they didn't necessarily conspire to to fool the jury.
0: Yeah, you, you'd expect there to be slight different, you know, dif- differences, uh, and that boosts its reliability as well. Um, before we jump on to the next point, because we only have so much time, I, I wanted to just to make this point. I want to elaborate on it slightly. Uh, this idea that ancient literature, and I'm quoting from your book, ancient literature from the period of the Gospels was consistently less worried about putting things in chronological order than arranging them by theme and topic. And you know, being in sort of the postmodern scientific age that we're in, cr- chronology is very important to us, you know? Uh, so I think when we read some of these differences in the Gospels about when things happened, it's it can be very, I don't know damaging to someone's maybe faith or thinking about it. So could you kind of elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Absolutely. I think a lot of uh, apparent contradictions are explained when we understand the genre of Gospels. Uh, They were written in the first century, of course, uh, you know, uh, many centuries ago. And so uh, we need to understand, how did people in the first century write an account of a well-known person like Jesus? And uh, on the one hand, they would rely on our witness testimonies. As, uh, you know, Luke uh, introduces his Gospel by saying that Candidly, uh, he was not an eyewitness, but he uh, based his account on, on the report of those who were. Uh, and uh, at the same time, uh, those writing uh, those Gospels would uh, feel free to arrange matters topically in some cases, uh, just for the sake of, of helping the readers get an accurate understanding of, of the significance of, of a given event, uh, In in John's case, he's selective. He selects just a few events and elaborates those in great detail. He gathers Jesus' miracles, uh, calls them signs, and uh, again, something that Bart Ehrman would label as a contradiction, while I would argue, no, this is just what theologians do all the time. To, to put their imprint on the material that they're narrating uh, in order to help the readers understand more fully the theological significance, in this case, of Jesus' miracles.
0: Yeah, and that's just so important to to recognize, because I think for a lot of us, uh, a lot of young adults too, they they look at the Bible without all this, you know, knowledge of the way things were written and the different genres and things like that. So it's very helpful to hear this, Andreas. And before we jump on to the next uh, section, I'll just finish with this. And I love this question that you ask in the book. It's just simple. Why can't we hear the Bible sing with just a little harmony? And I think that's just a good question to ask, sort of a rhetorical question. So, all right, let's move on to the next. Um This idea of uh, the copies of copies of copies of manuscripts, maybe, you know, a young adult's watching the History Channel or the Discovery Channel, and they hear uh, some scholar being interviewed just say this in passing about the copies of copies. How can we trust it? Uh, This is what Bart Ehrman uh, says at the beginning of this chapter in chapter five of your book. One of the things that people misunderstand, of course, especially my my 19-year-old students from North Carolina, is that when we're reading the Bible, we're not actually reading the words of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or Paul. We're reading translations of the originals of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or Paul, because we don't have the originals of any of the books of the New Testament. What we have are copies made centuries later, in most instances, many centuries later. So, I mean, when you read that, or if you heard that, it's very it sounds very convincing to and be like, well, I guess I can't trust this. So help us with this, Andreas.
1: Absolutely, and like you said, there's a certain rhetorical, uh, you know, surface plausibility until you look a little deeper. Uh, for example, just picking up on the quote that you that you just mentioned. I mean, who says that if if you have something in translation that is necessarily inaccurate, right? Uh, it, it it doesn't logically follow at all if it's an accurate translation then you, know, you don't need the necessarily the words in the original language. By that token, we would all have to read the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. Few of us are able to do that, right? We all uh, are very grateful for our accurate English translations. So again, I think uh, unless you have a... You know a highly exaggerated standard for accuracy, and I think that's exactly what we what we find. And I think that's more a result of skepticism than you know having reasonable uh, concerns with the Bible. But you know that said, it's true we don't have the original uh, autographs. That is, we don't have the exact the actual say letter Paul wrote to the Romans, for example. Um, I think that's probably a good thing because if we did, some people would probably worship. actual document. So uh, I think what Ehrman overlooks here is uh, what we have in our Bibles, we don't need the physical uh, papyrus, you know, or codex manuscript. All we need is a reliable text, Uh, and the text that we have is reliable because it has been faithfully passed on and copied from the originals. Of course, uh, some might say that we have uh, variant readings, so-called variants, so we can't know what the original readings were. But uh, I think certainly early in his career, Bart Ehrman seemed to be very confident that, that, that he knew what the original was, so much so that he speculated as to the motives that led some scribes to change the original reading to a variant reading. So I think that's that's very interesting. I think he just fell into skepticism you know, a bit later in, his career and most of those variants, of course, are completely inconsequential. We're talking about spelling errors. Uh, some might be skipped words if scribes, uh, you know, had manuscripts that they copied in front of them, or uh, some other inadvertent copying mistakes that can easily be spotted. So uh, I think uh, uh, saying that we don't know uh, what was in the original manuscripts just because we have uh, certain variants is again vastly exaggerating the problem. In fact, we have a vast number of manuscripts. We have almost 6,000 manuscripts of the entire New Testament, or at least parts of the New Testament, just to focus on the New Testament for a moment. So I think, again, uh, the reason why we have so many variants is because we have so many manuscripts to begin with. And again, it's one of those situations, you know, you, you you can't seem to win. If we only had few manuscripts, skeptics like Ehrman would say, well, look, how come you have so few manuscripts, right? But because we have so many, and so there's more variants, uh, you know, somehow that's turned into a, a liability as well. The fact is, we we, we can't trust our Bibles, we can't trust the translations, we can't trust the process that... Uh, Uh, was used in copying. Of course, you would imagine scribes who believed they were copying sacred scripture to make every effort, right, to be uh, accurate in what they copied. And of course, copying is a human process, so error occasionally crept in. But of course, in most cases, we are easily able to reconstruct the original reading uh, behind those uh, inadvertent mistakes that some scribes occasionally made.
0: Of course. And that, that's super helpful to know. And, and just to say this too, um, people like maybe Bart Ehrman or, or others as well will really, uh, you know, put a lot of their kind of throw their kind of weight in saying things like, you know, 200,000 to 400,000 of these variants are among the biblical manuscripts. But then, like you just said though, with almost 6,000 manuscripts, of course you're gonna have this many variants. And when you understand that these variants, for the most part, for the majority, are simple things like maybe a double word or missing a letter or or what have you, which totally makes sense if you're literally copying word by word thousands of words, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
0: The next one is kind of about what Christianity was sort of uh, about, what it was made of, what was the kind of the orthodox Christian truths, the beliefs, and this is what Bart Ehrman says at the beginning of chapter 6. There were lots of early Christian groups. They all claimed to be right. They all had books to back up their claims, books allegedly written by the apostles, and therefore representing the views of Jesus and his first disciples. The group that won out did not represent the teachings of Jesus or his apostles. The victorious group called itself Orthodox, but it was not the original form of Christianity, and it won its victory only after many hard-fought battles. You know, reading something like that, Andreas, it can, you know, as a someone who doesn't, is kind
1: of shaky on their faith, that could definitely steer them away. Absolutely, and it's again this uh, postmodern, you know, almost cynical view of history that as Ehrman and others would would say that history was written by the winners. You know, you see feminists make that same argument that somehow the Bible is just a result of a male conspiracy to suppress and silence women, uh, often arguments from silence themselves. And so uh, I've actually written an entire other book, uh, The Heresy of Orthodoxy, to deal specifically with uh, this argument. It has the subtitle, How Contemporary Culture's Fascination with Diversity Has Reshaped Our Understanding of Early Christianity. So uh, some listeners who are interested specifically in this question uh, of uh, did uh, the... uh, early Christians uh, somehow suppress the truth and, and is, is truth merely a function of, uh, of you know, uh, sociology, might want to pick that book up. I co-wrote that with, with uh, my good friend, Mike Kruger.
0: Cool. That's great. So what would you say to, and I'll, I'll link that also to the episode page, but what would you say uh, to those who've been taught by, you know, the Discovery Channel or their professor that, you know, what we believe to be Orthodox Christianity, you know, wasn't really the the truth of what, you know, the disciples taught, let's say, uh, until the, you know, until it was made, you know, most popular by Constantine and things like that. How, how would you, you know, convince someone that these truths that we call orthodox today really were the teachings of of Jesus and so on.
1: Well, um, one uh, thing I would point out is that uh, you know uh, again skeptics like Ehrman base a lot of uh, their arguments on on a book written by German scholar Walter Bauer. It's called the Bauer Thesis: uh, uh, Heresy and Orthodoxy in Earliest Christianity, where he makes the point that early Christians in the first century were diverse. There was no such a thing as Christianity, the way you and I look at it today, is historic, uh, traditional Christianity. There are only Christianities in the plural, uh, and Ehrman has called Bauer's book the most important book on early Christianity in the 20th century. So uh, what I would point out, though, in response is that uh, despite the title of his book, Bauer doesn't even deal with the first century, and he he, uh, is biased against the New Testament writings as historical evidence. Uh, themselves because if you look at the New Testament you see that the Christians from the very beginning were extremely concerned with the Gospel and with Orthodoxy. Uh, You look at Acts chapter 2 verse 42 and it says that at the earliest Christians immediately after the birth of a church at uh, Pentecost right after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ uh, devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Or uh, think of Galatians uh, chapter 1, verse 6 as the first letter that uh, Paul wrote among the 13 of his letters in the New Testament canon. And Paul says there, if anyone preaches a different gospel than the one I'm preaching to, even if it's myself or an angel, let him be cursed. So people were extremely concerned to safeguard what what Paul later would call the good deposit uh, when he wrote to uh, Timothy. So to say that somehow the apostolic gospel or the core of Christianity was just a second, third, or fourth century invention is just manifestly untrue if the, the New Testament writings uh, have any value as historical documents
0: right and then i guess we could understand that things like gnosticism or something like that you know sure they came to be popular and then they sort of fizzled out uh
1: because obviously they were not true exactly so gnosticism was probably the the first uh, serious christian heresy uh, but it it is parasitic on apostolic first century christianity arose i think virtually all scholars would agree now Uh, only in the second century, and was still fairly localized. I think in in the Heresy of Orthodoxy, Chapter 3, we point out that only uh, what you and I today would look at historic Christianity was widespread all across the first century world, and then heresies would crop up just more locally, but none of those had anywhere near the geographic distribution and were anywhere nearly as widespread as Orthodox Christianity.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating, um, Andreas. We're going to have to wrap this up sooner now, and we've missed one of the one of the most important, and that is uh, the idea of Christ being risen from the dead, or or not, as some may uh, skeptically assert. So maybe we'll have to do a, a whole other conversation just on on that. But, anyways, to our listeners and myself, we do want to thank you, Andreas, for taking time out of your out of your day, out of these two weeks, really, to help explain to us uh, some of these skeptical assertions that again you know you walk into a college or a university class and your professor or a book you might read as a textbook th- these statements are sort of flung at you with this sort of rhetorical kind of a way to make you really question your faith and think that it's really based on you know illogical or you know not based on good evidence. but the fact of the matter is if you just dig a little deep deeper under, I should say, uh, you will find that there is much evidence and much scholarly work on these things. So if that interests you more and if what we've talked about these last two weeks, I'd really encourage you to pick up truth matters, confident faith in a confusing world. Uh, We'll have this book linked on our episode page as well. But anyways, also biblicalfoundations.org. It's a great resource library that Andreas has started, so check that out as well. But anyways, uh, Andreas, thank you so much for your time, and I hope to have you back on the show again soon.
1: Absolutely. Great to be with you. Thanks so much.
0: That was Professor Andreas Kostenberger. We're so thankful for his presence with us on the show. You should check out biblicalfoundations.org. This is his main ministry and educational site where you can find many great resources on lots of different biblical and life topics like marriage and family, mission and discipleship, and apologetics. Lastly, if you feel like In Doubt is a ministry you'd like to financially support and would support, uh, we'd be very grateful for your partnership with us. Everything we do costs us money, Uh, but we give it out for free. So our ministry really is a charity relying on God's provision through people's generous donations. Um, If this is something that you're interested in, just head to our website at InDoubt and follow the simple instructions there. Well, I'm Isaac, and join us again next week for another episode of In Doubt, where we chat with a guest on a topic of life and faith with a biblical perspective. We'll see you then. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify, or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.
1: Hi, Ben Lowell, Director of Good News Global Media's Indoubt. If
0: you listen to today's program, you're either a young person looking to understand how the Bible speaks to current issues of life, faith and culture, or you're someone passionate to see young people grow in their walk with Jesus and understand the Bible. We wanna thank you for being with us and encourage you to touch base by emailing info at or in the US, info at indoubt.com. Also, we wanna let you know that Indoubt is a ministry that only exists through the support of donors. So every gift of any amount means so much. For more information, visit indoubt.ca or in the US,
1: indoubt.com.